0: Hello, everybody, and welcome again to Reverb. My name is Alex Helberg, uh, and I'm joined by my co-host, Calvin Pollack. How's it going, Alex? I'm doing real good, Calvin. And on today's show, we are honored to be joined once again by Dr. John Otto, Associate Professor of English at Carnegie Mellon University. John's research draws on theories of rhetoric, discourse, and multimodality to critically examine how powerful agents use symbolic communication to generate support for war. His most recent work, featured in his book, The Discourse of Propaganda, focuses on how propagandistic war rhetoric spreads across texts and across time, using case studies from the Persian Gulf War and the U.S. War on Terror. We are honored to have John here with us for a retrospective conversation on the rhetoric of the U.S. War on Terror 20 years on from the attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon on September 11, 2001. John, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me, I'm happy to be here. So uh, I, I think we kind of just wanted to start out on some broad and basic terms, uh, painting in broad strokes across this this 20 year uh, tapestry of uh, not only uh, material action uh, on the ground in uh, in the Middle East and uh, Africa and elsewhere where the war on terror has been waged, uh, but in our media sphere uh, and in the sort of media propaganda that gets circulated. So in the broadest strokes possible, if you could give it to us, uh, how do you feel that national security rhetoric and war propaganda has shifted between uh, 2001 to 2021? Well, I think, you know, I
1: think there's two sides of this. I think it's important to look at shifts, but also look at continuities. You kind of have to track both. And so very broadly speaking, you know, there are parts of American war propaganda that are evergreen that never go out of style. So why don't we start there, like, you know, they're bad, we're good. <laughs> um, they Their violence is brutal and aggressive and totally illogical. And our violence is defensive and protective and really the only uh, rational choice that we have. Uh, we have the inherent right uh, to attack them anytime, anywhere. Uh, if we don't really have a legal right, at least we always have a moral right. So like I said, those things are evergreen and those are broad continuities. And that really for all kinds of war rhetoric, not just the war on terror. But within the war on terror rhetoric proper, we could also think about continuities as well as shifts and variations. Um, and one instructive way that I think we could go about this is to start with uh, Adam Hodges' work. So Adam Hodges uh, wrote a book called The War on Terror Narrative. I think he published it 2011. And it's really a definitive look at the way the George W. Bush administration invented and perpetuated the stories we told to get, our, to get the country to go to war in Afghanistan and in Iraq. And so we can say, looking at what Adam Hodges pointed out about George W. Bush rhetoric, what's still happening and what seems to be not happening quite so much. Um, and I think Hodges' first move, one of the very first things he points out, is the cognitive conceptual metaphor uh, that was used to frame the terrorist attacks. Uh, and interestingly enough, if you go back to the beginning, uh, of the right after 9-11, the Bush administration was... Uh, varying a little bit into, uh, as to how they wanted to frame it and so one possibility was the crime schema uh, and you saw the Bush administration saying like uh, Suspects have murdered people and we need to uh, Search for them uh, a search is underway, right? Uh, and obviously the implication uh, if you follow a crime schema is then uh, arresting suspects, right? Uh, trials due process things like that, but as we all know that quickly uh, lost favor for the war schema, right? And so you saw enemy attack, uh, fronts, things like that. And obviously if you follow that script, then you're talking about bombs and tanks and soldiers and boots on the ground and things like that. And that's the way we went. So the first thing that we can ask ourselves is 20 years later, has that changed, right? Have we shifted from say a war schema to a crime schema? And at this point, uh, I would say it's fair to say there's been no real effort to reframe uh, what terrorism is and how we should respond to it. And at this point, it would really take a monumental effort to 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 talk about terrorism as a crime, talk about maybe crime prevention and apprehension rather than war and bombing and killing and things like that. Uh, so that's number one, major continuity. The logic uh, has not changed in that respect. And then within the war schema, there's a couple of other points that I would make about things that haven't changed. One is that Bush made clear back in 2001 that... Uh, the response would be military, but also that the response would be preventative, right? So if you remember, the idea was, we're not going to wait for the next attack. We're going to strike them before they get us. Has that changed? No, that has not changed either. We still have this logic of we always have to be on guard for the next threat and get them in a preventive way. Even if international law says maybe that's illegal, maybe you have to have like either an imminent attack or a real attack on yourself. Nope, we're still looking for the next threat and we're still willing to take people out before they can attack us. Um, And then it also, and Bush declared that the war on terror would not end with Al Qaeda. He said this in 2001, right? And it was about terrorists and those who support them. And I'm paraphrasing, but the line was something like, it will not end until every terrorist of global reach has been found, stopped and defeated. Has that changed? No, (laughs) no, it hasn't. Like the methods have changed, but the idea that the war on terror doesn't end with Al Qaeda, that there's always going to be a new face and a new threat. That is still with us 20 years later, even with Biden, even after withdrawal from Afghanistan. Now, in terms of variations, I think there are a few that are sort of interesting and and one that maybe is a little bit more significant than the rest. But one of the things that uh, Adam Hodges finds with regard to the uh, initial war on terror narrative is that it always began with talk of the precipitating event, i.e. the 9-11 attacks. Uh, And so even if certainly this was true during the Bush administration, but even When you get to 2009, when President Obama uh, recommits troops to the Afghanistan war, he called it a good war and said, we got to keep going on with this fight. Uh, He, too, begins by re-sort of orienting Americans to where this all started. It started with the 9-11 attacks. Um, And I think that, uh, you know, in the last couple of weeks, we definitely heard lots of references to 9-11, right, because of the anniversary and also because of the withdrawal. But generally speaking, that's something that has shifted. I think there have been fewer and more oblique references, to the 9-11 attacks particularly. Uh, And these days it's enough to just kind of invoke terrorism or invoke terrorists as the reason why you're fighting. Uh, And in fact, we have cases where 9-11 probably wasn't brought up at all. Uh, So for example, when we turned the war on terror uh, cannon onto ISIS or ISIL, depending on which abbreviation you prefer, uh, it wasn't the 9-11 attacks that were brought up, but the murder of James Foley. Uh, and insofar as we think the Soleimani assassination was part of the so-called War on Terror, 9-11 wasn't invoked at all, right? So that's something that's changing. And I think the obvious reason for that is that, you know, as we get further and further away from the nine eleven attacks and further and further away from those who are responsible for those attacks, uh, we're going to hear less and less about 9-11. As new generations of fighters <laughs> who weren't born during 9-11 have to still keep going on with the War on Terror, we get to hear less and less about those attacks in particular. Which isn't to say that it can't be invoked at at, you know the drop of a hat it still can be and the other big shift that i sort of have observed has to do with state sponsors of terrorism right so bush's whole deal was if you remember we are we will make no distinction between terrorists and the nation states uh that support them uh those who provide them quote unquote safe haven right and so it wasn't just about getting al-qaeda It was also about the Taliban, and then later Iraq, who allegedly was another state sponsor of terrorism. Uh, And this was even continued into the Obama administration. So when Obama re-upped for the Afghanistan war back in 2009, interestingly enough, he shifted the focus even more on the Taliban than he did on Al-Qaeda. And the reason was that there were only like, this is in 2009, there were only like 300 Al-Qaeda members still in Afghanistan, it was estimated, at that time. And so... Obama was calling for a surge of 30,000 troops, and those 30,000 troops needed an enemy, and it was the Taliban. However, it's also during the Obama administration that you begin to see a shift away from this focus on state sponsors of terrorism, those who provide safe haven, right? Uh, Less and less talk about regime change and removing one government and replacing it with another uh, puppet government, uh, if you like, and more and more about, no, our response has to be more targeted it has to be airstrikes. It has to be uh, the drone war. And I think that this shift, again, has happened for a number of reasons. One is that uh, it just became untenable to continue with these long conventional ground wars because the public uh, didn't like them <laughs> after a amount of time. There were lies, first of all, that the public became aware of, especially with Iraq, that was like, oh this is yucky. But even with the Afghanistan war, and this was beginning, even at the beginning of Obama's first administration, people were like, why are we doing this? Why are we here? Is this like another Vietnam? Uh, and so people were turning against the war. The enthusiasm was dragging. And so, especially with soldiers coming home in coffins and things like that, if you go to a drone war, you go to airstrikes, it's not quite as present in everybody's mind. Uh, American GIs are not getting killed. Uh, and those are the lives that uh, people care about here, it seems. so that's okay, we'll just go on with that. And the other part of it is like, uh, every new administration, it's related to this, every new administration wants to distinguish itself from the one that came before. Uh, And one good way of doing that is to sort of say, well, the last administration was doing the war the wrong way, so I'm gonna do it a different way. Uh, And the different way is gonna be, no more boots on the ground, we're gonna do an air war. And you see this even through Obama, Trump, and Biden, Uh, at least rhetorically, we're not going to do this forever war anymore. Uh, This perpetual war is a bad idea. We can't keep fighting these wars forever. And, you know, to the liberal mind, this sounds great. Of course, if you look at the fine print, it's like, oh, no, we're not ending the forever war. We're just kind of changing the way the forever war is going on. In fact, there was just uh, a cost of war uh, project. I think this comes from Brown University that said that the uh, war on terror is continuing under Biden in 85 nations. Uh, So it's still going on, gang. Uh, This isn't Biden is ending sort of one big front on the war on terror, but it's still happening. Uh, But again, you can't talk about it in those terms. You have to say we're winding down our wars.
2: And really what they're winding down are the big ground wars. Wow, that's that's a fantastic summation, John. We want to get into some examples here of the rhetorical and argumentative tropes that you're identifying and some of the continuity and some of the change. But before we do, I wanted to get your sort of high-level take on the media ecosystem and to what extent that has changed from 2001 to 2021, because that's another thing that we really admire about both of your books is, is that you capture not only the textual and discursive features of Arguments for War, but also the broader material... Uh, media ecosystem. So, like, I mean, I think especially it was really shocking, at least to Alex and I, when we were talking, preparing for this, it was shocking to see the sort of univocality of the media when Biden announced this withdrawal and and through you know announced it and then really went through with it. It was one of the first times during his administration that there was really dogged critique. Of his administration, and you know, and and these like fierce, uh, sort of White House press conference battles going on with reporters like shouting at him, um, who weren't you know who weren't just far right like Breitbart plants, but actual like New York Times reporters and Washington Post reporters. So, you know, what do you see there? Like, does that univocality tell us that nothing has changed, or you know, what? What's different about the ecosystem now for um, foreign policy and, and how presidents legitimate war um, and, you know, and, and, and what kind of pushback they face from the media?
1: I mean, I see it as more of a continuity than a, a change, right? So I think if you look at the life of the war on terror, even at any hint of maybe ending the war, there was a massive pushback from the press. Um, I can't exactly explain why that is. I think uh, one possibility is, uh, you know, the press indexes its coverage to what's going on in Washington. So insofar as there is a side kind of claiming that ending the war is bad, it's going to be disastrous, then the press will emphasize that. But I also think there's a part of me that just kind of thinks like they like the war. <laughs> they, they, and it's always kind of advisable if you're a journalist to say like uh, ending a war is bad, it's bad for our image. You know, there's an ideological aspect of this. In other words, uh, if we end the, end the war, then we're going to look bad. We're going to look weak. Uh, we're going to look like we're, uh, what's China, what are China and Iran going to do, you know, <laughs> if we end the war, imagine how they're going to sort of take over us, you know, weakness is provocative, that kind of neoconservative trope. I think people kind of buy into that. And I think like, as we saw with the Trump administration and really every administration, when, when Trump became presidential, for example, it was when he was doing war, right? It's like, well, Trump became president today. He, he lobbed missiles at enemy targets, right? So there's something kind of sick, I think. Uh, the press is kind of addicted to war. I think it's it's good business for them to be addicted to war. But I also think, uh, ideologically, I think they actually, uh, a great many of them anyway, believe that the war is a good thing. Or, and this one we can get into a little bit later, they believe at least if you're going to have this war, you better get something out of it. Uh, And if you don't get something out of it, then you did something really bad, right? Like war has to, war has to achieve something. Um, If you're the press or really most people, I think, probably think this war has some kind of uh, political advantage for you. And part of the thinking there that is probably not going on is that war is always bad. (laughs) War by its nature doesn't provide good outcomes. It provides bad outcomes. But when bad outcomes happen after a war, There's a sense of betrayal, I think. And I think the press tries to express this. But yeah, I I think in terms of variation, I think because of social media, there's a lot more, uh, there's a lot more, you know, uh, dissent as well. That's at least available to people. So I can go online and find something out about the cost of war project, you know, criticizing the war on terror going on in 85 more countries, saying that it's counterproductive, it's not working. Uh, not that that those reports didn't exist, but I think there there's a little bit more availability to them. But I think in terms of the mainstream press, it's
2: same old, same old. Right. Right. So so there's that there's that additional dissent happening on social media and and maybe, you know, in some cases, there's additional like firsthand testimonies of, of war. And I think we've seen that, especially with um, Israel, Palestine, which, of course, is uh, part of the war on terror, but a slightly different region. Um, But uh, at the same time, as I think you've pointed out in your work, like the same two or three corporate conglomerates own the the mainstream press. That's right. um, And that hasn't changed. If anything, there are probably fewer corporations that that own the media. Yeah, that
1: monopoly has only become more concentrated over the years. And I think for reasons that are both, you know, there are financial incentives, but there are also ideological incentives, as I was suggesting, that that trying to drive a pro-war stance on journalism.
0: Yeah. And on, and on multiple levels too, it was actually through one of your articles that I learned uh, that uh, for the first time that NBC was owned by General Electric, one of the most, one of the largest weapons manufacturers uh, in, in the U S. Um, yeah,
1: that's no longer true, but it was true before, before the Iraq war. And uh, you know, <laughs> General Electric was getting like these big contracts for weapons, you know, at a time when, you know, it's just, This is something that Chomsky points out. It's sort of commonsensical and people sometimes shrug it off as if, well, surely the journalists aren't just going to do the bidding of their employer. Well, yes. Yes, actually, they are. If General Electric wants the war, you're not going to go up against the big bosses. And you're certainly not going to run stories criticizing General Electric for being warmongers, right? So like there's there's something to that uh, structural critique and I don't I would never dismiss it.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So I think I think at this point let's turn the clock back 20 years uh, to uh, to really give concrete grounding. We need like the the Wayans where like we'll add that in post. Yeah, going all the way back to 2001. <laughs> um. There's, a, there's an article that I actually, I wanted to read in full because it's not too long, uh, but it's an op-ed that was published in the New York Times on November 14th, 2001. So just uh, two months after uh, the uh, attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. Uh, it's a, uh, an op-ed in the New York Times by Larry P. Goodson titled, U.S. Troops Must Go In. So this is just to kind of give us a sense of what was the tenor of uh, op-ed pages in the paper of record around this time when uh, military direct military intervention boots on the ground was was currently on the table as a policy option so it starts we are at a critical moment not only for afghanistan but for the united states the northern alliance has proved itself a good proxy force working in conjunction with american air power to drive the taliban and al-qaeda forces into disarray but in a country whose recent history is one of warring factions and hostile ethnic divisions, America cannot allow Northern Alliance occupation of Afghan cities to become the order of the day. Before the Alliance can become entrenched, we must send in our own soldiers, in large numbers, to enforce human rights and keep the peace. We may well need American troops as fighters to secure victory in the southern regions, too. The Taliban still have troops in their southern stronghold around Kandahar, In these heavily Pashtun areas, the Northern troops are unlikely to be welcomed as liberators. But beyond a military victory over Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, the great opportunity for the United States now is to lead the rebuilding of Afghanistan in a way that convinces open-minded people in the Islamic countries that America is a force for good in the world. Yes, this is nation-building. State failure is the cause of Afghanistan's current woes, and by extension many of the problems of the surrounding region. We must be active in Afghanistan until it is a functional nation once again, one with a just sharing of power amongst its competing ethnic groups. Americans who still fear committing our troops need to know that this is not the Afghanistan of the past. In the 1980s, the Afghan Mujahideen tormented their Soviet occupiers until the Soviets were finally forced out. But the Mujahideen had sanctuary in Pakistan, United States backing and near-total support of the Afghan people. None of this applies to the Taliban. After the Taliban are driven from all Afghan cities, their most dedicated elements might try to fight from mountain strongholds as guerrilla warriors. But without wide local support and help from the outside, they will be able to make only limited forays. There is a commanding humanitarian reason, too, for the quick entry of a large American force into Afghanistan. Our troops can provide a transitional military government over the winter months, one that can maintain law and order, collect heavy weapons from local militias, and facilitate the distribution of food, emergency supplies, and reconstruction aid. United Nations troops and forces from many nations can help with the work of stabilizing and rebuilding, but only the United States has the ability to keep Afghanistan stable as it recovers from Taliban rule, and then to stay the course through what should be a long reconstruction phase. Only the United States has the overwhelming national interest to pursue what is best for Afghanistan." All of Afghanistan's neighbors, but especially Pakistan, have their own short-sighted political agendas in Afghanistan. For America, the goal must be to destroy the conditions that allowed Afghanistan to play host to terrorism. And a defeat of terrorism in Afghanistan would rob the world's terrorist movements of much of their momentum. The work of military engineers and civilian construction companies will be just as important as the combat campaign scenes of afghan parents mourning their dead children killed by stray american bombs should be replaced by scenes of american soldiers feeding and clothing afghan children and rebuilding their homes so that's the op-ed john uh, just to get your just to get your spit take what do you what do you notice in there that strikes you as particularly interesting for that time but also part of this enduring legacy of uh, war propaganda
1: i think what surprised me when i read this was how early this was coming. Um, in other words, this, I remember it from the Obama administration. What I'm seeing here is like uh, what Obama referred to as counterinsurgency or coin, right? Uh, and I think the the greatest uh, language that sort of ca- captures both what this was about and why it was destined to fail is right in the first paragraph uh, with this phrase, um, we must send in our own soldiers to enforce human rights. Now think about that collocation. Human rights probably in most discourse doesn't get collocated with a word like enforce. How do you enforce human rights? And this was the the strategy essentially of counterinsurgency, Uh, social work with guns, right? We're gonna support the needs uh, and uh, address the grievances of ordinary civilians, but we're gonna do it at the point of a gun with an occupying military. We're going to bring human rights, you know, as if it's a gift that you can put in a box and you're like here, here's some human rights. And you're like, oh, of course, it's just my size. Right. Open up the box. Now you've got human rights. Right. And we're going to enforce them again at the point of a gun. So you, the illogic here is this you're, pr- you're putting in a forceful military uh, apparatus uh, and trying to use it to create peace, stability, democracy and rights. Uh, in a country that isn't even yours, right? And that was the other part that uh, really piqued my interest here, where they said only the United States has the overwhelming national interest to pursue what is best for Afghanistan. I mean, the arrogance of we know what's best for Afghanistan, and only we know what's best for Afghanistan. That is the kind of thing that makes you know my blood boil. Uh, but again, what I what I would say is that this probably was not super widespread in two thousand one. Because then it was just like, it was more about let's kill and destroy the terrorists. By the time you get to the Obama administration, when they're re-upping the war in Afghanistan and recommitting, that's when you really see the counterinsurgency idea like, oh, we, our soldiers can't just be blowing stuff up. Uh, we also have to replace those grisly images with soldiers, you know, handing out candy and human rights, you know. Uh, and, and so again, it's just completely illogical, the notion that an occupying army uh, that is inherently violent. Uh, is going to bring peace, stability, or, or in this take, keep the peace as if it exists, right? Uh, it's completely irrational, destined to fail. Uh, and it was already being tra- uh, trotted out in 2001 is the only surprise. Right.
0: Yeah. I also just wanted to point out, too, um, uh, and, and we can talk a little bit more about this as we look over some other artifacts here. But, but a lot of the things that you mentioned, uh, as well as some other things uh, from that article, were actually mirrored almost directly in, uh, in Joe Biden's, um,
2: uh, what was it, the, the speech that was— The August 31st speech uh, announcing the withdrawal— or that the, that the withdrawal was concluded. Yeah, precisely. Yeah, there
0: were uh, there were a lot of things that were saying, you know, this is the longest war in American history. We completed this, one of the biggest airlifts uh, of over 120,000 people. That number is more than double what experts thought were possible. No nation, no nation has ever done anything like it in all of history. Only the United States had the capacity and the will and ability to do it, and we did it today. So I-
2: Yeah, that... That phrase, only, only the United States, seems to echo a th- across the 20 years.
0: Right, that's
1: true. I, there's always that sort of, you know, we're the shining beacon on the hill exceptionalist rhetoric. But I mean, what's what's fascinating to me is just how the game has changed by the time you get to Biden. What he's celebrating is that we were able to get out, right? Only the United States could get out so well, whereas what the original author was talking about is only the United States can create a, basically a new nation uh, allegedly from scratch, like those backwards Afghans don't know what to do. Only the United States can install a government that will be stable and democratic, etc. Yeah, absolutely.
0: There was also another strange parallel between the Goodson and and Biden's comments in that uh, Goodson, you know, has that very, uh, very direct phrase that just says, yes, this is nation building, um, which which also points to some sort of I guess controversies around the framing of the global war on terror as whether or not it is a nation-building project. Uh, clearly there were hawks, you know, at the very beginning who were calling this a nation-building project. Uh, Biden explicitly frames that as not what the original purpose was, but something that it morphed into. He says further on, we saw a mission of counterterrorism in Afghanistan, getting the terrorists to stop the attacks, morph into a counterinsurgency, nation-building, trying to create a democratic, cohesion, cohesive, and united Afghanistan. Um, And then actually celebrate it, something that has never been done in many centuries of Afghan's uh, history. Uh, Moving on from that mindset and those kinds of large-scale troop deployments will make us stronger and more effective and safer at home.
1: Yeah, I think Biden is probably correct. And notwithstanding the fact that this article appeared in 2001, I don't think that this was the dominant take on what was going on in Afghanistan or what the gold were. Um, However, the DNA was built in Uh, to George W. Bush's rhetoric because of we don't make a distinction between terrorists and those who sponsor them. And so once you sort of go in with the sledgehammer and say, I'm going to break up this government, you're sponsoring terrorism, then you're kind of in this place where, okay, uh, now what do we do? There's no government here anymore. We got rid of the so-called state sponsors of terrorism. Then you morph instantly into now we're going to build a place where there's never going to be terrorism again because we're going to create... Create a stable government and bring democracy, you know. Democracy is always a thing that you just bring, just like human rights, right? Uh that's that kind of language uh sort of fills in after you've kind of done the destroying. And it just it becomes more and more, you can become more and more entrenched, I think, in that sort of ideology if we have to uh, create something stable here, create a government here that's gonna work. And the original idea of just like, you know, terrorists who got on got us on 9-11 is completely lost, as I said, with Obama. He's not even talking about Al-Qaeda anymore. He's talking about the Taliban.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I think a, a good place to look to kind of resolve this this dichotomy, which I think is really fascinating between, on the one hand, extremely kind of ruthless, bloodthirsty, terrorist targeting rhetoric, and this more humanitarian feeling Rhetoric of nation building and institution building and like making making Afghanistan safe for Afghans um, is is actually from Ryan Crocker, who was the ambassador to Afghanistan uh, under President Obama and wrote one of the most critical op eds of Biden's decision. So I wanted to just read a couple excerpts from this article, Why Biden's Lack of Strategic Patience Led to Disaster, August 21st, 2021. So Crocker writes... As Americans, we have many strengths, but strategic patience is not among them. We have been able to summon it at critical times, such as the Revolutionary War and World War II, where, for example, Congress did not threaten to defund the war effort if it wasn't wrapped up by 1944. In Korea, nearly seven decades after an inconclusive truce, we still have 28,000 troops. But our patience is not the norm, and it certainly has not been on display in Afghanistan as the world watched the Taliban storm into Kabul. As the enormity of the events in Afghanistan this past week sinks in, the questions start. How did this happen? How could we not have foreseen it? Why didn't Afghan security forces put up a fight? Why didn't we do something about corruption? The list goes on. There is one overarching answer, our lack of strategic patience at critical moments, including from President Biden. It has damaged our alliances, emboldened our adversaries, and increased the risk to our own security. It has also flouted 20 years of work and sacrifice. The United States' objective in Afghanistan has always been clear. To ensure that Afghan soil is never again used to plan attacks against the American homeland, it was not about nation-building as an end in itself, or building a new democracy, or even regime change. The message from the Bush administration to the Taliban after 9-11 made this clear. If you hand over al-Qaeda leadership, we will leave you alone. The Taliban chose to fight instead. Once the Taliban were defeated, our fundamental mission of ensuring that Afghanistan was never again the base for an attack on the United States did not change. But the means to that end became much more complex, and the development of those means would require patience. Crocker goes on, When I arrived at Bagram Air Base in January 2002 to take charge of our reopened embassy, Afghanistan had nothing, essentially no government, no institutions, no army, no police, just a yawning vacuum. And vacuums in the greater Middle East tend to be filled by actors who do not wish us well. Crocker goes on, quote, Corruption was endemic in New York, Boston, and Chicago through much of the 19th and into the 20th centuries. It took us time to grow the institutions and legal structures that would eventually make corruption the exception rather than the norm. And that returns me again to my central theme, time and patience. As our own history attests, societal change is a slow process. Witness the 11 years our new country spent moving from the Declaration of Independence to the Constitution. Even then, issues like slavery were papered over, only to erupt in a civil war 74 years later. Yet we seem unable to appreciate that other societies will find the challenge just as difficult, and even more so if the engine of change is a foreign army, unquote. Crocker goes on, quote, The American disaster in Afghanistan that Mr. Biden's impatience brought about is not a disaster just for us. It has also been a huge boost for the Taliban, whose narrative now is that the believers, clad in the armor of the one true faith, have vanquished the infidels. That is resonating around the world, and certainly next door in Pakistan, where the TTP, the Pakistani Taliban, which seeks the overthrow of their government, has certainly been emboldened, as have Kashmiri militant groups created by Pakistan, but that threaten Pakistan itself, as well as India. Mr. Biden's strategic impatience has given a huge boost to militant Islam everywhere, end quote. So I can keep going, but it's basically all about strategic impatience, right?
1: Right. Where to begin? So let's begin with strategic patience. First of all, whenever you see the word strategic, that should be a watchword. And a word, you know, this isn't, not to get too technical, but your bullshit meter should be like running on high whenever you see strategic, right? I've seen strategic applied to uh strategic misrepresentation what's strategic misrepresentation it's fucking lying right so let's let's think about what strategic patience actually is strategic patience uh is here's what it invokes it invokes the idea that we're just sitting there being neutral and being patient and waiting things out waiting for things to evolve and progress along a trajectory that we think is going to be successful Here's what's actually going on: We're fighting a war. We're killing people. Uh, we're occupying in a foreign uh, government. Uh, we've, we're putting in, uh, propping up counterinsurgency forces that are uh, abusing uh, and torturing people in the countryside. So the notion that what we're doing is just neutral is complete is complete bullshit, right? Uh, but that's that's where this this sort of frame works. It makes you think that the American presence. Uh, and the status quo is just us waiting around for things to to turn the corner, and that our own activities are, you know, uh, completely benign, when that is in fact not the case, not the case at all, and uh, it's really disturbing. The other thing that sort of occurred to me was all of the analogic rhetoric, right, where uh, we're comparing what's going on in Afghanistan to what happened here in our own country, right. Um, The obvious one obvious difference is that uh, that was our own country and not uh, an occupying force in our own country bringing us to these great, you know, anti-corruption measures. Right. We did it ourselves. We didn't have an occupying army doing it to us. But the other thing is something that Patty Dudmeyer talks about. Right. It's this notion that we're this advanced nation. We figured all our shit out. Right. We're we're over here looking back on our sordid history of corruption and slavery and all that yucky stuff. But this young, burgeoning nation of Afghanistan—they haven't figured it out yet. Like, so we're we're in the this race of progression of, of humanity, and we're f- obviously at the end of history. We've figured it all out. Whereas Afghanistan is this primitive culture, and they can't figure it out without our help. So those are the two things that point that really struck well, me. Yeah, and cool. and
2: just to add to that last point, when when Crocker says that you know it took us a long time and much institution building to get to the point where corruption is the exception, not the norm. Um, I had to laugh at that. Like, I don't know. We, we have, we now have legalized corruption. That's the difference. Corruption is just, they just made it, they just
0: made it legal now, basically. It's,
2: it's not a norm. It's a law that you have to do corruption.
0: The corruption
1: is built into the fabric of the institution and built into the sort of wealth disparities, but that's a whole nother can of worms. But I think you're you're right to sort of point that out. Like the notion, but here's what here's one other thing that I'll say. Like we're propping up, or we're propping up, horrible security forces that were doing terrible things. Right. It's not like we were just like always on the right side of history in Afghanistan. What we were trying to create was stability. And the way we create stability was paying off, you know, brutal thugs <laughs> to get stability, right? So uh, that that isn't. I don't think that's how it happened. Maybe it is. I don't know. Maybe President Taft was probably paying off dogs. I don't know. But like, the analogy breaks down really badly. And again, it, it's it's like all war rhetoric. It's an erasure of our violence. It's an erasure of our aggression and brutality. Uh, and this kind of euphemistic idea. Of we're just sitting around being patient, waiting for that corner to turn. Uh, who knows? Maybe another couple of decades in Korea. We've it's been seventy years. You know, we can we can keep going. We can keep waiting like this. Uh, with the notion that we're just, you know, uh, being neutral is is really sickening to me.
2: Yeah. I just wanted to read one last part. At the very end of the op-ed, he has this really powerful image. He kind of sums up the war on terror in his final paragraphs. Crocker writes, quote, Whatever happens next, the image of this American capitulation is already etched indelibly in the world's imagination. It is that U.S. Air Force C-17 taxiing for takeoff from Kabul, surrounded by a desperate Afghan mob. Seconds later, at least one man falls to his death from the plane's wheel well. It is eerily reminiscent of the people who jumped from the World Trade Center on 9-11 rather than face death by fire. What a tragic and painful circle it closes two decades later. Unquote.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, this is something that's also very true of the media uh, writ large here. When do you zoom in on violence? Right? When do you zoom in on human suffering? And I think this is like a great case of it. Like, it's not that I would dispute that this was tragic and awful. Right. People clinging to an American plane as it leaves. Right. But he'll never do that for like when American bombs are blowing people up. Right? That violence never gets sort of specified and detailed in a report like this. Again, our violence doesn't exist. It's just neutral patients. But the, the violence is when we leave. right? The irony here is astounding. So, yeah, they'll zoom in and, and put in these graphic images of terrible things that result from us leaving, but never zoom in and show the graphic violence that we're actually committing uh, by virtue of our presence in this
0: country. Yeah, the only other thing I wanted to point out in that is the, uh, speaking of the zooming in on violence and particularly, you know, why and how do we zoom in on particular types of violence, uh, one strategy that does get brought up here towards the end of the Crocker article, but but I think was a feature of more uh, of the responses to the withdrawal from Afghanistan, uh, was this focus on, on women and children, but specifically women, uh, being used as a... Uh, basically, a, a, a reason for not leaving Afghanistan because the Taliban has always kind of been um, at least painted and perhaps not untruthfully as a uh, regime that is uh, religiously fundamentalist, that is repressive towards women and. Um, Crocker writes, uh, uh, we have betrayed our promises to interpreters, women and children, and others who are now trapped in an Afghanistan controlled by the Taliban. Um, and I wanted to specifically focus on this because other rhetorical scholars have focused on this trope of, uh, Kind of identifying what what Dana cloud calls a clash of civilizations between the uh, industrialized progressive uh u s and the backwards primitive uh, otherwise uh, kind of you know morally morally, morally undeveloped uh, uh, countries in the middle east um. Dana Cloud obviously has written about that, uh, a great article called To Veil the Threat of Terror, uh, about the creation of this clash of civilizations framing. Uh, I believe uh, Maureen Dowd actually also published a, an op-ed, um, among many others, uh, called uh, Liberties, Cleopatra, and Osama uh, from uh, 2001, right before the, uh, right before the, the uh, commission of U.S. troops. Yeah, it's talking about uh, basically using that example of Cleopatra uh, arising as a as a you know female, uh, powerful figure from the Middle East. Uh, and she writes, "...when civilization rose in the East, it was scientific and sensual, embracing the possibilities and pleasures of life from mathematics to literature, art, and fashion. There have been many repressive regimes throughout history, but the Taliban were obsessively focused on denying gender, sexuality, and the forces at the very gut of life." When the barbarian Puritans running Afghanistan began to scurry away last week, men raced to buy pinups of beautiful girls. And in moving, a moving and amazing tableau, some women unwrapped themselves, letting the sun shine on their faces as they smiled shyly and delightedly. A few dared to show a little ankle or put on high heels. So again, this is Maureen Dowd writing on November 18th, 2001. Um, about basically using this sort of like Western conception of liberty uh, and applying that to, again, the um, barbarian Puritans uh, who are running Afghanistan. The only thing I wanted to note here, one of the ironies was uh, I I did a little bit of background research on this op-ed, and there were multiple letters to the editor that came into the pages of The Times uh, in the weeks afterwards that were saying, what grounds do we have to criticize uh, a regime's policies towards women when we are currently in the process of restricting abortion rights to women uh, and bodily autonomy to women in our own country? Um, a point which I think very much still stands, uh, as uh, just especially given the uh, recent uh, uber repressive uh, ruling uh, in Texas. Um, so, yeah, I was curious about what you thought about that—the role that that women' innocence. Uh, uh, and others play in that kind of that creation of the clash of civilizations narrative here.
1: Yeah, I I think I agree with Dana Cloud. And I think um, one thing to point out is that this is a very longstanding trope. This didn't come to life, you know, uh, with Afghanistan. So if you go back to, uh, you know, the, the Spanish-American War, 1898, uh, the Hearst newspapers ran these Uh, tabloid-esque kinds of articles talking about how Spanish officials uh, were strip-searching young Cuban girls and what was President McKinley going to do about it? Uh, Did he care about women? Uh, Did he care about their sacred honor? Those kinds of things. Uh, World War I, uh, tons of atrocity propaganda, much of it uh, directed at how the Huns were violating women, uh, bayonetting pregnant women, things like that. Um, And so there's like two ways one of these are not the only two ways, but one big way you get people to respond to the call to go to war is you say the enemy is going to kill you (laughs) and you have to save your life. The other way that we're pointing out here is you say there are women who are vulnerable and we have a duty to save them from these brutal, backwards, despotic, uh, primitive beasts who are going to violate them uh, if we don't move in. Now, in the case of Afghanistan, I think You know, unlike in the Hearst case and the atrocity propaganda of World War One, there's a lot more truth to the allegations, right? The Taliban, I think we can all agree, was incredibly brutal, subjugating women, for sure, and continues to do so. Uh, But I think what I said before is something worth uh, returning to. It's incredibly selective, right? So the United States knew about the Taliban and their treatment of women well before 2001, uh, and turned a blind eye to it or maybe even gave it tacit approval. So when do we see this emphasis on women's rights emerge? We see it at the beginning right, of the war as a, as a way to sort of uh, convince people that the war is good and noble and just. Uh, and then we see it at any point in the life of the war on terror where there's at least a hint that you might stop doing the war. <laughs> right? So in my first book, I came across this uh, Time, Time magazine cover story Uh, And there's this very graphic, disturbing image of a young Afghan girl, maybe 16 years old, a close up tight shot of her face. And there's a hole where her nose should be. Her nose has been cut off. It's an incredibly disturbing, repulsive image. Uh, And attached to this image uh, is the headline, what happens if we leave Afghanistan? Right. Um, The obvious implication is if we leave Afghanistan, women are going to be brutalized. They're going to be mutilated. Uh, And then again, you saw us very recently in 2021, same kinds of ideas. What's going to happen to these poor Afghan women? Again, we zoom in on the violence of the Taliban, but we discount and erase the violence that we have done to women, when we have been bombing and shooting women, when we've been propping up security forces that have shot and killed women or raped women, right? That is not counted, right? Then human rights don't come to the fore, the right to safety, the right to life, the right to security, that gets totally erased. Um, and so there's this, this move in Afghanistan to sort of highlight the, uh, the gains, if you will, that were made in cities like Kabul, where women are going to school and showing a little bit of ankle, to use Maureen Dowd's memorable phrasing. Uh, but they ignore the violence in the countrysides where American bombs and snipers are shooting women where Afghan security forces being propped up by Americans are being just as brutal to women as the Taliban were. And really, this was one of the main driving reasons why the Taliban uh, resurfaced, is that people in the countryside were getting so brutalized by the American presence that they were turning in droves over to the Taliban uh, to get rid of the American occupiers. There's a great article, I think it's in The New Yorker, it's called The Other Afghan Women, a long-form piece which details what women in the countryside were experiencing during the American occupation and how they couldn't wait to get rid of the American occupiers. Uh, But again, that violence that we do to women uh, and that our uh, allies and clients do to women is never focalized, never brought into the conversation about women's rights and feminism
0: yeah absolutely no that's a that, that that brings up so many good points um about just the nature of propaganda not in, in sort of invisibilizing the violence of the of the us force uh, and you know highlighting zooming in on on their violence, but also this notion that propaganda is intertextual and it borrows from resources that have come from uh from instances prior right like this is not just something that appears out of nowhere. Uh, And I only wanted to make this point on that concept of strategic patience, because there's been a lot said about this uh, op-ed in other podcasts, in a lot of other media circles. uh, But I haven't really seen a lot yet of uh, intertextual contextualization. So I think it's useful to do that here, uh, because strategic patience is actually, we might call it an ideograph that has been around in uh, foreign policy speak for a while. John, as you mentioned, it's it's often, you know, when you see the word strategy, it should cue to your mind. This is going to be a euphemism for something much more insidious. Uh, and But I think we can actually see the the roots of why this caught on so much uh, from its, its very beginning. Uh, as far as I can tell, I, I was doing a ProQuest search uh, for newspapers on that term strategic patience. Uh, the place where it really seems to take off in U.S. foreign policy comes from uh, Strobe Talbot, the Deputy Secretary of State uh, for the Clinton administration uh, that was who was trying to develop this uh, like some metaphor or some catchphrase to describe the Clinton administration's policy towards, believe it or not, Russia, <laughs> which, again, is something that's still with us to this day. Uh, it says here, uh, this is from a, from a New York Times blog uh, in, the, uh, in 1999, that said, On September 19th, 1997, Talbot offered his conception to Stanford University. Quote, We need to make sure we have a policy toward Russia that contains an indispensable feature, strategic patience. That means a policy not just for coping with the issue or the crisis of the moment, or the week, or even of the season, or for getting through the next summit meeting. Rather, it means a policy for the next century. Uh, So... That already kind of rings a little, uh, rings a little ominous, coming in uh, 1997 as this ideograph that's used to talk about foreign policy that we absolutely see reflected through uh, the Bush, Obama, Trump, and now the Biden administration.
2: Just to add to that, Alex, we were looking at some other examples where we saw this coming up in conversations around North Korea, U.S. engagement with North Korea that. Um, in fact, it was writers at the Brookings Institution arguing that the Obama administration in 2010 was exercising too much strategic patience with North, North Korea in just waiting out the regime. And so what I think is fascinating about this, and I'm curious to get your take, John, is that this seems to have more valence in discourses around diplomacy specifically. And I wonder to what extent Crocker is making a conscious or unconsciously uh, you know associating this with diplomacy as as a war rhetoric that um implies that actually you know keeping the troops in and continuing the war is the most diplomatic move
1: yeah i think you're right calvin it seems to be like war rhetoric masquerading as diplomacy right turning war and violence into literally into a virtue into patience Um, And I would just add like one little feature. I remember when I was reading, uh, uh, I think it was a defense document written by Robert Gates during the Obama administration on their sort of long-term strategy. They literally called the the Afghanistan war or the war on terror, the long war, right? And they predicted back, this is back in 2009, 2010, that this was going to have to last until at least 2024, right? So strategic patience, if you will, has what, or really war has been baked into the cake from the beginning. The idea that we were going to be there into the twenty twenties, they knew that for decades. Um, and I guess Biden called called it a little early there. He called it three years before they said, so now everyone's like, where's your patience? Um but yeah, I, I don't I don't have enough knowledge of like what's going on in those sort of diplomatic security schools. Like I, I imagine you go to school at like the the center for grooming future diplomats, and they teach. There's a book that's called Strategic Patience that you have to read, and then you inflict it on the public through your op eds. But I don't really know enough about it. I, I just what I said. I think is what I believe that it's a little fishy.
2: John, we're almost out of time with you, but I think we want to wrap up on something that you do know more about, um, which is some of your your current research on drone strikes and how drone strikes are justified and how victims of drone strikes are, uh, rendered in discourse and in rhetoric. Um, and so, you know, this, this is a really critical point to cover, I think, in this episode, because one of the key features of Biden's speech on August 31st, uh, 2021 was that he makes this point about the United States is over, over the horizon capabilities that, you know, even though we're getting our troops out, we will maintain the ability to strike terror anywhere it is within Afghanistan or without it. And that of course is a policy and a posture that depends on a massive architecture of drone strikes and drone bases. And so you've been working on a project recently on uh, drone strikes and how drone strikes are justified in the media and, and covered in the media. Um, would you like to tell us a little bit about that project and, and just some of the things that you're noticing?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Thanks. Um, I first I wanted to uh, give a shout out to Cameron, our old friend Cameron, friend of the show, Cameron Mozafari. Thank you, Cameron Mozafari, uh, who is uh, who's going to be helping me with this project. We just sort of came together on this. But basically, what you said is what I'm after. So I'm looking at drone strikes that begin in roughly 2004 with the Bush administration all the way through the first year of the Trump administration. And the basic question I'm asking is how are the victims of these strikes represented if they're represented at all uh who counts uh as a victim how do we count victims both in the numerical sense but also in the sense of like who counts as like uh having maybe deserved to die and who counts as maybe uh having sort of received an undeserved death that kind of thing um and one of the things that i already sort of have touched on a little bit in this interview is that notion of zooming in that notion of specifying what happens uh Uh, to the victim in a drone strike, for example, uh, is something that I've noticed quite a lot. Um, So uh, it's incredibly rare uh, in the the news coverage that I've been looking at, the presidential discourse, and really all the discourse that I've seen, to really tell the story of what's actually happening to people who live under drones. Um, And instead you get this very uh, view from, you know, 30,000 feet kind of coverage Uh, and so the violence that we're inflicting on people is is schematized it's made to see non-specific so for example you get reports that are like drone strike kills one person you know and all that language is extremely underspecified like kill could just means the sort of no longer make no longer alive person is could be anybody right Uh, Whereas, you know, it's possible to really provide names, to tell stories, to say this is what happened to bodies uh, on the ground. Um, So that's one sort of major aspect of it. But to bring it two ways, I'll bring it into bring it back to some of the things we were talking about. One of the major tropes that I see is a lot of insistence on mentioning women and children. Um, Right. So you get you get a lot of coverage. That's like the drone strike killed eight people, including women and children. Uh, the drone strike killed scores of people, including women and children, or or something like that, again and again and again and again in the news reports. Uh, and what you come to realize is that this is because women and children are like special victims. They're like, <laughs> and it's part of that paternalistic kind of thing that we were talking about before. Like it's really, really wrong to kill women and children. And notice how those two groups are kind of linked together. Um, I think I've just sort of been thinking about this. I think part of it is to kind of like infantilize women, right? To make them something like children, to be defenseless, can't take care of themselves, need us to protect them. Uh, but I think the other part of it is to kind of normalize all other kinds of violence. So if you're like a 24 year old man and you're killed in a drone strike, you know, it sucks for you, but at least you weren't a woman or a child, you know, like that kind of violence is built into the picture where some, some victims get sort of like special status, as being particularly bad victims. But the other thing that I was thinking about a lot uh, with regard to what we were just talking about in Afghanistan is this other metaphor that has to do a little bit with counting, but the real base metaphor is like cost, right? And we definitely have seen this quite a lot in the Joe Biden speech, in that other op-ed that you were reading, they talk about the costs of war. And the basic metaphor here is that uh, suffering and violence are like monetary costs, right? And this really lends itself to, uh, if you follow the metaphor, things that are quantifiable, right? And it's really easy to quantify like actual monetary costs. Uh, it's fairly easy to quantify costs in terms of like human lives to your own soldiers, but it becomes exceedingly more difficult to quantify how many people, how many innocent civilians you killed, for example, because you don't always know. Uh, and so those costs are often not really taken into, uh, taken into the equation. And it's even harder to think about the psychological terror being inflicted on people and to quantify that. And so you you see this in the Biden speech. He talks about costs to American soldiers and how many do- trillions of dollars we spent. But he doesn't mention Afghani victims whatsoever. He doesn't count them. He doesn't tally them into the cost metric. But the extension of this metaphor is where I kind of want to leave things. It's not so much that suffering and violence and war are costs, but that they're payments. Right. And so here's where you see rhetoric like uh was it worth it uh, what are we getting in return and i just want to suggest that this is a really shitty metaphor right for a lot of reasons for like so for one thing uh whenever you talk about war as a kind of payment that you uh that you make in order to get something you kind of disguise all the ways that war isn't like that <laughs> right so when you try to like uh say buy something on Amazon if you're willing to do business with the evil corporation of Amazon. uh, And you say like, hey, I, I purchased this thing, I gave you my money, but I didn't get my product in return. Then you can get your money back. But you can't do that with pain and suffering. You can't unsuffer the pain and you can't return the lives that are lost in war. So that's one major difference between that kind of payment and another. But even if you do get what you want, and so I see this critique on the left, like, was it worth it? It costs so much, but we didn't get a stable democracy. We didn't get human rights. We didn't get uh, uh, anti-terrorism. We didn't end terrorism with this war. And so it cost something, but we didn't get what we paid for. Right. And I understand where that critique is coming from. But I want to suggest that, again, it kind of hides and masquerades what the payment actually is. Uh, so like when you're. Here's what I'm trying to say. Uh When you're buying a shirt in the store, they don't say it's gonna cost you every shirt you own plus all the shirts that everyone else is wearing, right? But when you're purchasing, quote unquote, uh, women's rights at the expense of subjugating and violating women, or when you're purchasing democracy at the expense of anti-democratic occupation, those two things don't compute. And so this payment metaphor, this way of saying, I'm gonna pay for these things sort of suggests that the money is actually like different than what you're, I'm can't. i I'm not being very eloquent here, but there's a massive contradiction between the payment and what you're actually trying to get. And in fact, the payment is antithetical to the thing you're trying to get. Um, and I think that's kind of where I want to leave it, that this is a, not a good way of thinking about war as something that you pay in to get some kind of result, even in the best circumstances uh, because war is always a waste. It's not a payment
0: wow powerful words to leave us with uh john we really really appreciate Absolutely. appreciate all of your insights uh and everything that you've shared with us i think this is a this is a very good uh, way to look forward as we think about how to be critical uh critical citizens you know consumers of media as well as activists on our own um, in the coming uh, the coming years of the war on terror because as you said it's it's not over it's continuing um, and these are things that we need to be very very critical and aware of
2: yeah and we should probably add that on August 29th there was a drone strike uh, you know two days before Biden gave that speech he kind of proved the you know the severity of his words by authorizing a drone strike that killed seven children um, so you know this, the, the drone war is very much continuing despite the ground war ending. Absolutely.
0: Well, I think that's where we have to leave it for today. Uh, but we want to say thank you once again, uh, Dr. John Otto. Uh, it has been an absolute pleasure to speak with you uh, as always. And we really appreciate you sharing your insights with us today.
1: My pleasure. Thanks again for having me. Uh, it was great talking to you, albeit about things that are kind of hard to talk about.
0: Absolutely. Necessary. And from all of us here at Reverb, uh, we wish you all the best, and we will talk to you next time. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye. Our show today was produced and edited by Alex Helberg and Calvin Pollock. Reverb's co-producers at large are Sophie Wadzak and Ben Williams. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts check out our website at www.reverbcast.com you can also like us on facebook and follow us on twitter where our handle is at reverbcast that's r-e-v-e-r-b underscore c-a-s-t thanks for tuning in